This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. In this episode, I have the wonderful fortune of being on the road with Robert Hike, who was born in Armenia and raised in Soviet Russia. Now, having always dreamed of living in the United States, he did immigrate in 1997. Robert attended Georgetown University to study government and finance, and then spent 15 years in the world of banking and investments, laying out the foundation for pursuing his true passion of one day building his own business. It was during this time working for the U.S. Embassy in Bulgaria that Robert developed his love and appreciation for Bulgaria, its agricultural industry, and its wine in particular. There the seed for grapes and barley was planted. As Robert began contemplating the possibility of creating a company that could take advantage of the fertile soils of Bulgaria and the untapped potential of its wine industry and history. G&B is now the largest U.S. importer of Bulgarian wines, distributing its own brands across 35 states. Catering to the current adventurous spirit of the young, as well as the like-minded, more seasoned wine drinkers, I assume he's talking about me, G&B's mission is to demystify the world of wine by creating compelling, relatable brands that invite consumers to try something new and think about what they're actually drinking. Striving to serve as an industry leader in sustainable, transparent business practices, G&B aims to educate consumers about the social, ecological, and nutritional impacts of winemaking and wine drinking. Robert, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. That's a, that's a nice intro. <laughs> well, I, I could have said it better if I'd written it myself. Robert, you know, it's kind of interesting. You come from this world of banking and financing and investments, and yet here you are, the largest distributor now of Bulgarian wines in the country. I'm really interested in how this transformation occurred from finance to vineyard. So do you want the politically correct version or the one that I... The wonderful um, thing about podcasts is we do not need to be politically correct. Well, to be honest, I mean, obviously, I was always um, <clears throat> fascinated with uh, econ, finance. Um, it was a passion of mine, and hence uh, why I went into it. And of course, you know, and I also wanted in an interim to make money and have a better life than in which I grew up uh, in Eastern Europe and Soviet Russia. But ultimately, I think uh, I grew tired of the notion of this esoteric concepts when um, after 2008, I honestly lost my faith um, in the financial markets, and I realized there are too many variables that are not related to, quote-unquote, free market economy or free market forces, etc. And there's a lot in play, and um, being tired and being disappointed and um, not feeling that I am being fully honest with myself, trying to serve the clients, I basically left the world of finance. And when I was obviously doing my exit, I thought, what is it that I really would like to do? <clears throat> Agricultural business always was fascinating to me. And I kind of dreamt at some point to do something uh, in regards to it. Uh, Bulgaria was a natural choice, logical choice, because A, I spoke the language, I knew the country, I understood as much as you can understand as a non Balkan person, the Balkan mentality, which is, believe me, quite intriguing. 
um, I figured, you know what, um, I love the country and uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful people, great opportunity. Why don't we do something interesting and uh, market, U.S. market is saturated with France and Australia and Italy and Spain and uh, Argentina. Let's do something different. Let's introduce Americans to wine they have no idea about, country they have no understanding of or even can't locate on the map. And uh, let's shock them pleasantly and surprise them pleasantly as well. So, Robert, were you a wine drinker before entering this business? Uh, that's a great question. Not, not, I mean, I, I loved um, specific wines, but being an athlete my, entire, my youth and um, younger adult life, and I was in a junior Soviet team for track and field growing up. So it's kind of like embedded in me. My, my coach always used to scare me like one glass of uh, wine or vodka or cognac will kill two um, training sessions. And of course, we trained very hard and it was very important for us. It was sort of like ingrained in us that uh, we shouldn't drink. Obviously, I enjoyed occasionally a good glass of wine. I had my own preferences, but I wasn't, I cannot call myself, you know, two glasses a day person, but uh, that definitely changed. Obviously, I drink um, much more frequently and uh, after realizing the benefits and uh, talking to so many winemakers and talking to many, so many researchers and spending time uh, in France and in Bulgaria and, and in Europe trying to understand wine, we came to a conclusion that it's not only delicious, but it's also good for you obviously in moderation please understand that of course everybody's listening so you and i met both virtually and then briefly in person about five or six years ago and prior to meeting you i had never had a bulgarian wine i didn't even know bulgaria made wine tell me a little bit more about the bulgarian region do they like for example in california there's so many different regions in bulgaria is it just one region or are there many regions? Bulgaria has technically uh, five regions, but for purposes after they joined EU, uh, they fell under the regulatory environment uh, structuring uh, process of European Union. And obviously, you know, you can imagine France and Italy dominate and everything is kind of carved out politically to um, make every other region, you know, a bit less competitive. I know it's a little dirty secret, but hey, since we're being politically incorrect, I mean, obviously there's nothing malicious, but obviously it's, it's, it's just forcing a lesser known regions to kind of stay, stay, um, stay in your corner and don't do, don't do a lot of splashes. But Historically, Bulgaria has about uh, anywhere between four to five, five different regions. And it was actually um, determined by a French enologist who came in turn of the 20th century to help with uh, Philoxera in, in Bulgaria and also was the person who was responsible for creating of the enology school in Bulgaria, which has a more than 100-year-old history as well as planting of more modern varietals such as Chardonnay, Cabernet, etc. No, I just, I had no idea that, that Bulgaria had such a long history of modern winemaking. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, the historic traditional winemaking going back to Thracian Empire, which was arguably one of the first sort of a collective organized tribes and empires that, uh, that produced wine. And Homer mentions Bulgarian wine in his Iliad when he says, you know, uh, Ariseus gives um, Thracian wine to Cyclop to put him to sleep so they can blind him on their way to uh, Ithaca. And, and Homer praises Thracian wines in a very interesting way. He says they were so lush and so thick and so juicy that you, uh, you could dilute them for 20 to 1 with water. And of course, a lot of people always say that's a bizarre you know, uh, reference. Why would he mention diluting? Of course, you know, historically, in, in those times, people didn't drink water because it was anti-sanitary. They didn't have filtration. So dil- diluted a lot of water. And the only known world wine during those times was Greek wine. And he compares them to Greek and it says, Greek wines, you can dilute 10 to 1. And after that, you kind of lose the flavor. The Thracian wines were so powerful and so sort of like mouthful, as we would say today, that you could dilute 20 to 1 and still maintain the taste. So I think it's kind of cool. But of course, you fast forward uh, Bulgaria during Soviet times did tremendous advancements. I mean, forget the Warsaw Pact impact on social and economic and, and cultural aspects and civil rights, etc. But overall, for the industry, it was a big boon because they made an effort to uh, modernize Bulgarian winemaking because the raw material is there, the capacity was there. So Soviets put a lot of money and a lot of technological prowess behind modernizing Bulgarian winemaking. I mean, modernizing, we're talking about 50s, 60s, 70s levels. And, uh, and of course, not a lot of people know, but Bulgaria was second, I guess, largest uh, exporter of uh, bottled wine after France up, up until 1990s. Uh, obviously, majority of it wasn't a great quality wine because Soviets didn't care. They just needed a qu- quantities. But they also sold great quality wines to Britain, Benelux, Scandinavia, Asian countries. So for the hard currency that Soviets needed, the best Bulgarian wine went for sort of a currency export. Um, And then in 1980s, UC Davis was extremely instrumental coming to Bulgaria. This was done as part of the uh, PepsiCo exchange. PepsiCo wanted to get into Eastern Europe with their concentrate because Coca-Cola wasn't in there and PepsiCo wanted to beat them to get into the Warsaw Pact countries, the markets. So in exchange, they said, hey, we'll buy Bulgarian wine and we'll sell it through PepsiCo Wine R, which they did. I think um, I was talking to a seasoned sales rep of wine from Southern in Maryland. He said, oh gosh, I remember we used to sell like 2000 cases a month of that wine. It was cheap and it was awesome. But that lasted like for a couple of years. And after that, PepsiCo canceled the project and just um, that all was dead. But with that, UC Davis came into Bulgaria. And there are a lot of seasoned enologists right now in Bulgaria. When you talk to them, they fondly think of that time when they gained so much understanding of the vineyard management. Because you can imagine UC Davis was innovative and absolutely um, Uh, leaps and bounds ahead of what was happening even in Europe in trying to come up with a a scientifically uh, better way to manage the vineyards, to grow, to fight uh, 
viruses, etc. So they gained a lot of knowledge and understanding. And UC Davis was one of those entities that said, hey, guys, you need to really focus on those international varietals. Of course, don't neglect your native varietals, but international varietals are doing phenomenally well. So keep an eye on it. So that's why Cabernet and Chardonnay are so awesome, you know, in, in modern Bulgaria. I'm glad you actually mentioned, Robert, the quality and how it's improved since the Soviet era to today, because I remember having my first Bulgarian wine and thinking, wow, this is not what I was expecting. I kind of was expecting, and with all due respect, sir, I kind of was expecting plunk, and the quality was amazing, and what was even probably just as stunning was the price point for the quality that was in the bottle. How do you view the quality versus pricing and what's going on in Bulgaria for value? Well, Scott, obviously we're biased. <laughs> we think the quality is fantastic. Don't be modest. <laughs> but, but, but frankly speaking, obviously, aside from our human biases that we all have, and fortunately they drive a lot of our decision-making because, you know, it's more intuitive and, you know, we, we, our brains are lazy to make uh, the statistical uh, calculations or connections or just think about a little bit about certain things. And people are quick to rush to, oh, Eastern Europe, you know, we don't even know where it's on the map. What can they make? Or we are used to French and Italian and yeah. California or Argentina, and that's yep. good, and we don't want to venture beyond that. The, the truth is there's some absolutely phenomenal uh, potential within that wine region. Actually, Carolyn Goldie, who's fantastic in her recent book that focused on Bulgaria, Romania, and Moldova, talked about this modernization and especially last two decades that was absolutely phenomenal with Italian French investments, you know, um, uh, Count von Pearson, who opened up a winery in Bulgaria, Eduardo Mirolio, who owns a bunch of uh, Puglia uh, vineyards, who opened a 40 million euros worth of um, state-of-the-art winery. Castro Rubra that was built with Michel Roland under his guidance and, uh, um, and his uh, advice. I mean, there are some facilities in Bulgaria that you will literally, your chin will drop. Uh, it's state-of-the-art technology. And of course, the most important part, why those investments came in and why so many people are looking into Bulgaria, at least starting to look and starting to realize this is probably one of the last frontiers of tremendous quality and tremendous capacity is because the raw material is just phenomenal. And uh, I mean, the southern Bulgaria on the border of uh, northern Turkey and Greece is, I mean, it's just a cab and Merlot land. It grows like weeds and the quality and the bricks, um, you know, we're fighting obviously each year trying to keep the alcohol uh, at a reasonable level. But unfortunately, because of the fantastic climate and, and uh, various microclimates and a soil that is extremely conducive for such uh, wonderful grape varietals, you know, makes it kind of, you know, difficult to, to match the health conscious um, uh, baby boomers with lower alcohol because, you know, then you start manipulating the wine, you start interfering with the natural processes. So we sort of fight this, like on one hand, you want to bring something to the market that is going to sell and people will enjoy it. But at the same time, to be honest to ourselves and present what the mother nature and earth going to give us and what they give us is just an amazing cap. And the pricing, 
I can tell you this. A lot of people ask me, like, what are you talking about? Like, you're selling a calf for 10 bucks or 12 bucks, and somehow that is the worth. Uh, it's the same equal quality of a $20 from California. And I say yes, and because, you know, I'm kind of from the world of finance, and let's look at the math. You know, average cost of land across California, let's say, roughly, is $240,000. You know, if we include Sonoma, Russian River, Napa, etc., uh, average uh, cost of the acre in Bulgaria, $5,000. Wow. Uh, in California, if you combine all the regions, I'm not going to take the crazy Napa prices, but, you know, you're going to get anywhere between four to $6,000 per ton of cab. We buy it for $500 a ton. And of wow. course, and the same yield that Napa can get, you know, I'm not, don't, don't want to talk about whether the quality and the roots are the same as Tokalon or et cetera, we're not discussing that, but if we're purely speaking about a yield, which is the current known concept of quality. Uh, we take the same, we get the same yield for 10 times less money. So mathematically in California, you cannot make a $10 bottle of wine that is not adulterated, let's put it this way, or not manipulated or not formulaic wine. It's just, it's just not possible. So for Bulgaria, it is possible. And even with the three-tier system that adds all those margins in between by the time an unfortunate cu customer gets the wine into his um, happy hands, even with those markups, we still survive and we deliver phenomenal quality for an extremely affordable price. So you also mentioned marketing to the U.S. consumer in new and innovative ways. And one of the things I want to touch on, because I think it's actually becoming a thing, is canned wines. And I recently saw, and I love the label, by the way, as you know. Thank you. Your canned wine, Rough Day, R-O-U-G-H, Day. And it has a picture of a, uh, of a dog on, on the label, which looks exactly like my dog which I sent you a picture of. Um, <laughs> yes. Tell me, tell me where you think you know, the canned wine market is going because five years ago, I was really poo-pooing it. And now it's, it's, it's a thing. I see canned wine. People talk about canned wine. You go on picnics. I'm seeing it everywhere. Well, Scott, you, I mean, you nailed it. It's definitely, uh, while it was a fad, perhaps, uh, and some, you know, critics that, experienced critics who have been, this is not their first rodeo, sort of, uh, uh, and you are among those uh, prestigious people who understand love and are in tune with all this. Obviously, they were very skeptical. And yeah, I was guilty as charged. I mean, I, I was late to the game. I was, I was guilty of that. No, but you, you were correct in the sense that, obviously, uh, you know, and we can talk about why we think that's important, but overall, like, for example, the quality of the lining of the can, because it's just not just, you know, putting juice or Coke, it's different than putting wine. There are certain elements that interact with the aluminum, et cetera, so you need to have quality linings. Those quality linings um, have been coming up on the market, and they're still working on that improvement. And obviously, we are night and day between now and five years ago, for example. But it's still, it's a, it's a process. So you were, to a certain extent, correct being skeptical because uh, 
purely forget the marketing and packaging, like holding a nice, you know, seven layer glass of Italian manufacturer in your hand versus can obviously sort of kind of psychologically diminished um, yeah. uh, effect of that mystery of that allure of the wine. But purely from technological standpoint, you were correct because I don't think the wine world uh, was ready to put the wine in a can and maintain the quality beyond, let's say, three to four months. Now that has changed radically. So obviously now shelf life of the canned wine could be anywhere between, you know, six to 12 months. And, you know, obviously six is a very conservative and a lower range, but you can, you can, you can uh, store wine in can for a quite a bit of time. Obviously, we're not talking about aging still. We're talking about ready to consume, um, unpretentious, uh, good quality wines that need to be produced, let's say 2020 harvest, will be sold in 2021, maybe a little bit going to 2022, but that's about it. So we're not, this is not a, you know, something you can put in five years and taste it and be like, ooh, the wine has developed. We're not <laughs> still talking about that. Sorry. However, Having said that, for us, it was extremely important because, you know, we are all health freaks in our company and for us, our values are important. And while we're doing something, we want to make it right. And we talk, we'll talk about maybe at some point if you're interested about the health aspect, but can for us is environmentally friendly. Aluminum is, is yeah. the most recyclable and most forever recyclable, constantly recyclable, uh, almost close to the circular economy notion versus just the recyclability. So it is something extremely important to us as a responsible, socially responsible business practice. So we thought, hey, can we combine convenience? Can we combine um, the convenience of having two glasses versus whole bottle for someone? Convenience of picnic when you don't have an opener, you don't have to worry about it. And, and also, can we also help the environment? Not to, because glass is extremely um, carbon intensive, you know, and it takes a lot of energy not only to produce, but also to recycle. Um, that's why a lot of, uh, for example, uh, Scandinavian countries now using uh, glass to um, not, instead of recycling it, reusing in other uh, products, for example, like cement using in bridge uh, construction, uh, because they're coming to understanding that recycling glass is extremely damaging. Um, to to the planet. So there's a lot of elements of it, but of course, you know, and of course we'll look at the trends as well, but we think it fits, um, it fits our values, it fits our vision, uh, and it also sort of, that's where the ball is going, that's where the puck is going, and uh, we want to make sure we stay on top of the currents. Well, you're doing a pretty good job of putting good wine in, in the cans that I've tried, and uh, congratulations. But you did touch on, on health and transparency just a minute ago. So let's take a minute and expand on that because I'm fascinated by the ethos of your company with respect to the health benefits and full transparency. Well, Scott, that's, uh, I mean, I can talk about it forever and I, it's just, and sometimes. It's a 30 minute uh, podcast, Robert. No, I know. <laughs> But truly, it is extremely important for us. And uh, just personally, for myself, I look at every label. I, I don't eat processed food. I cook my own food. Uh, I, I avoid additives. I'm extremely conscious of how the agricultural products are made. All that things, you know, trying to eat organic, etc. And then our whole point was, and we're talking about, there was a debate. 
And within a company that, uh, when I raised the question, I said, how is the wine exempt from all this? What is this, like some kind of a God-given product that does not require any kind of scrutiny and, and a modern consumer who is requesting and demanding, rightly so, understanding and transparency about the nutritional value of the product they're eating, consuming, or drinking, somehow wine is exempt when you pick up well-known brands. I don't want to name any names, but everybody's in the same boat. You turn it around and it says, wonderful, juicy red blend. Uh, I'm sorry, what does that mean? Do you actually know that the average consumer even understand that there are close to 30 additives that go into wine? I mean, mind you, they're all FDA approved. They're all technologically and um, health-wise appropriate. But I think we ought to know what going, what's going into it. Is there a bentonite? Is there added ascorbic acid? Uh, is there a residual sugar or is there an added sugar in, in, in some cases? That was our concern that we need to educate the consumer. And then the ensuing uh, concern from that, stemming from that was like, well, people even understand, people even care. Are people, are we going to knock down this, you know, mystery and uh, beauty and uh, romance of wine? And I thought, look, guys, I, I mean, we all agree that we need to do what we need to do. I wouldn't pick up a bottle of water without looking at the label to make sure that there is no shenanigans going on. Wine should not be any different. So we made a decision that we're going to introduce, we're going to do very careful analysis of everything, the soil and pesticides, everything that is used by the production side, by the growing side, and make sure that we disclose all that, how, many, how much, uh, what the percentage of sulfites is, et cetera, and why and what. So if you click on a QR code on the back of the Bulgarian labels, for example, that we just started to introduce, uh, you can get very short serving facts, you know, calories, et cetera, residual sugar, acidity level. And then you can get more information if you, uh, if you do the QR code and takes you to the website where you can learn more about what do we do, what we don't do. Uh, we specifically make sure that we don't uh, use grapes that use Roundup. And in Europe, it's extremely prevalent, just like in California. And without causing, without calling into question any judgment or research validity of it, we just don't want to use it, period. We think it's bad, and we don't use it. So or in some of our wines, we make sure the sulfites are, for example, below normal thresholds, if not at the thresholds, trying not to go over it, because again, sulfites are necessary to preserve the wine, to travel from Europe to America, et cetera. So the health component is extremely important for us. And I think it should be extremely important for everybody else because after all, if you're so careful, you're making sure you're buying organic food, you're making sure you're cooking at home, you're making sure you're not breathing polluted air, you're making sure you're exercising and doing everything, and then you're consuming something you have absolutely no idea because you're relying on this sort of a uh, made-up notion that this is like as pure as you can get. It's not. It's like every, any other product. It has components. It has modern technology that it interferes with that uh, in a bad way or a good way. So you just need to be aware of it. Well, Robert, I applaud you for bringing transparency to the forefront of labeling in wine. You know, and speaking of impacts on health, I want to just get a very brief opinion from you. What you think COVID-19 what impact that's had on and big, maybe even versus smaller brands. 
That's a great question, Scott. And uh, honestly, obviously, COVID-19 brought a whole new reality, and we're experiencing that. And, uh, and there are two things that are uh, kind of disconcerting. Discon- uh, Number one is the impact that it has on all this uh, ice- self-isolation and um, social distancing and being more at home and not going to restaurants. I, I uh, personally, I worry that people are over-consuming because obviously the sales are tremendously up and I get it. It's like the last legal thing. You can self-medicate yourself. I just urge people why there are a lot of benefits, especially in red wine. Just keep an eye on it. You know, don't go crazy on it because it's, it's dangerous. This and is coming secondly, from a man who actually sells wine. I mean, look, of course, you know, I mean, we want to be successful, but we also want to sleep well. I don't, I don't want, you know, I, I know firsthand uh, uh, what uh, the devastating effects of alcoholism. I grew up in Russia, believe me, obviously they didn't drink wine. They drank mostly uh, vodka, et cetera, but just moderate, just keep an eye okay. on it. Like in anything else. In Good life. safety tip. And uh, in terms of big and small brands, um, what we noticed is, unfortunately, it's like a self-perpetuating notion. You know, stores are saying, yeah, people are kind of concerned, don't have a lot of time, they don't want to browse, they're going to buy big brands. And they do. The big brand sales are up. People are less adventurous. You can imagine the psychological impact of the COVID obviously taking its toll. So people are not going to be like, ooh, Bulgaria, let me try it out. No, they're going to go for something that they are comfortable with. So when people call me and say, my God, wines are, wine sales are up. You must be killing. I'm like, no, guys, this is only for big brands. Kendall Jackson of the world, the Pathics of the world, and Barefoots of the world. These are the benefiting entities because they're everywhere. The more exposure you have, the more sales you have. But, and of course, the buyers who are afraid for their positions, for the, afraid to you know, mess up the, uh, the structure, they also take what's known and what's safe, so what's going to sell. So it's sort of like self-perpetuating itself, but hopefully will at some point re-emerge and, and the right retailers, the more courageous, more uh, forward-looking buyers understand and, and we have a great relationships with them, including Total Wine and others that we work closely and we're doing very well. Well, you know, on that note, even though we have to moderate our, uh, our intake, now is the time in, in the podcast where we find out what's in your class. Awesome. What are we going to try today? Well, I, um, I thought our Bulgarian Pinot Noir 2018 vintage, uh, which just was named uh, number 48 in the, in the Wine Enthusiast Top 100 Best Buy list, which is an awesome, awesome Congratulations. Uh, accomplishment for us. It's obviously got 90 points. Uh, it sells for a, um, for a song, honestly. It's $14.99, I think, at Total Wine in some stores, more or less, but that's kind of like the 15 bucks. Uh, that's sort of like the best way I would describe it is like um, Burgundy meets North Coast, California. So it has that lightness of the body. It has that kind of a European, uh, a little bit more acidic, a little bit thinner um, a Pinot that you will be uh, if you've been drinking uh, Burgundy. And at the same time, it has that fruit and mouthful lushness of uh, Northern California Pinot Noirs. I think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic wine, and believe me, for 15 bucks, uh, you, can't, you can't come close to a good quality Pinot Noir made, uh, in all honesty, with the highest technological process with the least intervention as possible. I don't want to call it natural or anything. No, obviously, we make modern wines, but 
it's a it's a pure Pinot Noir. It's worth it's worth your fifteen bucks. I I guarantee. Well, you know, Robert, I've been doing this a long time, and nobody has ever described a Pinot Noir as if Burgundy and North Coast had a baby. <laughs> well, and, and Scott, you know, the, the reason I'm mentioning the uh, quote-unquote obviously tongue-in-cheek, the adulteration aspect is because, you know, obviously a lot of the cheaper under $20 Pinot Noirs coming from uh, U.S., uh, they have elements of Merlot, they have elements of Zin. Fortunately, you know, the winemakers for the uh, just destroyed the U.S. palate for that purposes. So when people drink true Burgundy, they go like, oh my God, that's just too thin. There's not enough body. I don't feel anything. But it's supposed to be. It's a gentle wine. It's a, there's the finesse that you're supposed to enjoy. It's like listening Britney Spears versus Prokofiev. It's going to require a little bit more effort. <laughs> but believe me, the, the ultimate result of your pleasure and understanding and your intellectual prowess is going to be much higher. So that's the 2018 Bulgariana Pinot Noir. Correct. And it's available in the U.S. market now. Absolutely, yes. It's mostly available through uh, Total Wine and More. They are a wonderful partner. They're one of the first who took a chance with the region nobody knew and us, a small company. So uh, we're extremely grateful and proud of the uh, relationship. But yes, so uh, actually Calvert Woodley also in D.C. sells it. So uh, for those in D.C. that there's no Total Wine, Definitely can uh, get it in a few stores. MacArthur, I think, and Calvert also sell, but we mostly sell it through Total Wine. Fantastic. So what's the next wine we're trying, Robert? Next wine is the Rough Day Cab. Rough Day Cab 2018. And uh, it has 90, 89 points from uh, Wine Enthusiast. It's a fantastic, uh, unassuming, good quality, well-structured, well-balanced wine. Again, it's not shooting for the stars. We're not pretending we are making something. But believe me, it's a, it's a $20 California cab. Good quality, decent quality. It's your everyday wine. It's not going to break your uh, wallet. And it's going to bring you um, a lot of joy in terms of the taste-wise. The palate is, um, again, what you will sense in a typical Cabernet. Uh, very juicy finish. A little bit unusual amount of flavors for the style and tight sort of a lingering finish. The wine energy is truly impressive. So is it running more towards the, the blackberry or, or more towards the, the red fruit spectrum of a Cabernet? It's a little bit of red berry pie, kind of a, you know, hints of dried oregano even. You can taste coffee, definitely aromas of coffee. Blackberry and blueberry more, although... You know, it's, it's funny because a lot of the red wines from Bulgaria have a cherry uh, essence. Well, I got to tell you, I'm really excited about these two wines. And what, what is the price point on the Rough Day Cabernet Sauvignon? So Rough Day Capsov can, I mean, it's designed to be like between 12 and $14, but wow. different markets sell it for different prices. But I mean, you can find some stores sell it for $9.99, some stores sell it for $14.99. There's the markups, there's the regions, there's taxes in different states. Honestly, wow. it's, you, you know it's better than anybody else because this wonderful world of 50 different states, 50 different mm -hmm. laws on alcohol makes it, Truly an uh, awesome, <laughs> awesome process to try to understand. Robert, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Can you just remind our listeners again, what are the two wines that we have? So we, we tasted, well, virtually, Bulgariana Pinot Noir 2018 and Rough Day Cabernet 2018. 
Fantastic. And I am so excited about talking about Bulgarian wines and having you on the podcast today. Thank you again for joining me. Scott, thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity because believe me, you're one of the few who truly, truly follows us and truly cares about it. Thank you. I'm grateful. It is my pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday afternoon on WTOP and WTOP.com. Until the next time, do good, drink well.